Hey everyone, I hope everyone is doing fantastic on this fine evening. So, tonight I want to talk about the Cuban Club and the Don Facente Inn in Ybor City, Tampa, Florida. Before I can talk though about these places, I have to incorporate just a bit of history of where these two places are. So you'll have an idea as to why there's so many paranormal claims and encounters from them. Now, Ybor City, Tampa has a violent and brutal history. Organized crime was the major influence of the time, and with the constant barrage of rival shootings and killings, it's no wonder that the city was nicknamed the City of Blood. Now, I'm told the city was like a wild west of the south, and it's not a wonder that Ybor City is a hotbed of paranormal encounters and claims. The Cuban Club and the Don Vicente de Ybor Inn are two of its most haunted buildings and home to many who met the demise in the area. Now, with that, without me getting too far off course, I need to mention that the organized crime routes kind of went like this. Now, they traveled from Chicago to New York, and then from New York to Holiday, Florida, Tampa, Ybor City, Miami, and then over to Cuba. And they did the same route backwards to to go back. So it was kind of like a circle. Now, the mob we all know had interest in drugs, prostitution, gambling, and it was kind of in that route. And many who's ever seen the movie Donnie Brasco uh, with Johnny Depp, they'll remember that that was kind of centered in Holiday, Florida at the King's Court Lounge. But it also took place in other parts of Florida as well. Uh, this story, though, is not about organized crime. Uh, there's plenty of other podcasts about organized crime. But this was just to give you the possibility of why Ybor City is so active with the paranormal. So, now, when people claim that a town was the wildest in the West, I definitely think of gunfights and brothels and saloons and cowboys and spurs and <laughs> horses. But what about if the city was dubbed the Wild West of the South? Now, if you change the cowboy hats to gangster fedoras, the vests to suit coats, spurs to cigars, and horses to automobiles, you get Ebor City. Now, this neighborhood just outside of Tampa has an amazing history, which has led to some of the most interesting haunts there is. Now, when you drive down 7th Avenue, it becomes clear that it's truly a cigar city. Now, some people, they kind of, uh, to them, it reminds them of like the French Quarter of New Orleans. Uh, the bars dot the landscape and the roads are still built from brick. But rather than having the scent of stale beer in the air, there's a sweet smell of cigar smoke, and everybody smokes cigars there. And if you never had the opportunity to watch someone hand roll a cigar, that is the place to be because they are, that's an art form. I mean, it truly is, and it doesn't take them long at all. You, you know, if I would do that, yeah, it would just be a pile of uh, tobacco. <laughs> That's it. It would not even look like anything. In fact, just put it in a Ziploc bag and, you know, put it in a pipe and smoke it. <laughs> it would be a lot easier. Now, 
Ybor City was founded by a group of cigar manufacturers, and they were looking for a place to relocate. And most of them were coming from the Keys, the Florida Keys. So Tampa was close enough to Cuba to keep the price of Cuban tobacco low. And it also had the plus of a new railroad line that was being built through the state of Florida to facilitate transportation of cigars to the rest of the United States. Now, the leader of this group, so to speak, uh, of the cigar manufacturers, his name was Vincente Martinez Ebor, and he built his workers' homes and sold them for basically cost. And that was a great incentive to get people from the Keys up to the Tampa area. I mean, that was a great way to get them up there, and, and it worked. Now, the area was found in 1885, and it was named after Ebor. Uh, the success of the city led Tampa to annex it in 1887, and it became the state's first industrial town. So it was definitely booming back in the day. Now, Ebor's cigar factory, his was the largest brick building in Florida at the time. So very successful cigar manufacturer. Now, immigrants, they came from all over the place to work there. Uh, the city took on a European atmosphere, and the immigrants arrived from Romania and Italy and Germany, um, Spain, and, well, yes, Cuba. So now each group had their own club, and all array of ethnic holidays were observed. So, I mean, that's a lot of holidays. It'd be like every other day. <laughs> now, these different groups brought their own specialties, and soon shops were popping up all over Ybor City, as well as restaurants. Now, German lithographers invented the cigar label, and this made Ybor City a very special place. I mean, think about it. You have now the ability to put your brand on the cigar to tell it apart from everyone else's. So very, very awesome. Now, the ethnic clubs provided social outlets as well as health care for their members, and workers were happy as they were not beholden to a company, and workers could own their own properties. And that was another big lore right there. Now, what makes the area so great is that many of the buildings, the factories, social clubs, and the old balconied storefronts, they still exist to this day. I've been there, and it is a beautiful place. It's definitely, a, it has that old look. You can feel the history. Now, the area was called the Wild West of the South because it was lawless. There wasn't any law there. And when Prohibition was acted throughout America, Ybor City completely ignored it. The taps were on continuous flow there. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they had nothing to worry about. And this brings up an interesting fact, too. Way back, uh, I believe Santos Traficante Jr., he kind of, like, owned Florida. He was a big mobster, kind of owned Florida. And he was of the mob from Chicago and... and um, New York, and he was the only one that could speak Spanish, so he had <laughs> he had that area under control. Now, tunnels were built underneath the city, 
And these were not constructed to facilitate the sewage system, people. These tunnels helped for crime. And they were used for transporting illegal stuff, uh, booze, even though they didn't have no worries. Uh, it helped criminals escape when night spots were raided. Uh, the lawlessness attracted the mob and gangsters big time. Uh, speakeasies popped up all over the place along with brothels and murder and mayhem and <laughs> everything else that goes with it. Now, organized crime also run a gambling game called Bolita. And it's Spanish for little ball. Now, from what I'm told, this is a game of chance like a lottery. A bag is filled with small numbered balls and one is pulled at random, and this is the winning number. There was a, a notorious gangster back in the day. His name was Charlie Wall, and he ran many of those Belita games, and he used the proceeds to fund his criminal projects. As the 30s rolled into the 40s, residents of Ybor City took to calling it the Era of Blood. Now, the city continued to deteriorate, and the buildings were abandoned. And in the 80s, the neighborhood took on new life as an artist colony developed in Ybor City. And soon bars and restaurants and stores all moved into the area, and the nightlife has been alive ever since. And also alive is the remnants of the crazy past. So it is a great place to visit. Now, I have to... Uh, once, <laughs> how do I want to say this? Now, since we have the backstory of Ybor City, now I can start with the history of the El Circulo Cubana, which is the Cuban club. Now, in 1902, the Cuban immigrants in Ybor City formed El Circulo Cubano, and that means basically circle of Cubans. Now, the original Cuban club was made of wood, and it burned down in 1916. The club was quickly rebuilt in the same spot at the corner of Palm Avenue and 14th Street. And this time they used brick, but not just any brick. They used a yellow brick because it was three times the price of red brick. And they wanted to be, you know, the one that uh, upped the Spanish club and show off a little wealth that they were making. Now, the style was neoclassical and the club was... Um, it had a gym and the latest exercise equipment of the time. It had a running track, basketball court, a bowling alley, a pharmacy, a library, swimming pool. Uh, now, to note, the pool was only 10 foot by 10 foot, and it was 10 foot deep. So it was kind of more like a spa, but it was the only place that had a, a swimming pool. You know, that's... <laughs> that's a big part right there and it's hot in Florida folks it's hot and it's humid so I mean I'm sure that was a major uh, drive right there now there's a theater with the ceilings painted like the sky there's a small balcony and a little ticket booth just outside the doors the dressing rooms are off to one side backstage and they are small now the grand ballroom had elaborate murals painted on the ceiling and People like Tommy Dorsey and Glenn Campbell played their big band tunes there. Now, the buildings were decorated with imported 
tile flooring, uh, stained glass windows, elaborately called elaborately carved scruffito spandrels. Now, the fortunes of the club won in the 1960s, but the Cuban Club Foundation bought the building and they preserved it. Now, the theater is haunted by a young man. Uh, this young man wanted to be an actor and a director. It took him two years to write and develop his own original play. And in 1919, he rented the theater and had his family and all the Cubans in the city come to see his debut. And halfway through the play, he forgot his lines to, to it. Now, rumor is he was laughed off the stage and he runned away. Uh, now, he has, has still had the keys to the theater, so he returned at approximately four in the morning. Uh, he walked up on the stage. He put a rope over a center beam, tied a noose on the end. He stands on a chair with the noose around his neck, and he finishes the play. The young man then stepped off to his death, and while his earthly body exited stage right, his spirit remained center stage. Now, he is also said to haunt the theater and usually shows up around 4 a.m. Uh, he's most often heard reciting his lines in Spanish. And in the 20s, a member of the board was killed by another member during a heated argument. <laughs> now, that murdered board member, uh, the ghost is said to walk throughout the building. Uh, also, a piano is heard to be playing by itself in the theater as well. Now... It's common in theater spaces across the world to leave a ghost light on when the theater would otherwise be completely dark. Now, if it wasn't there, everyone would be tripping all over everything. Now, while this is a tradition of a bear bulb on a stand in the center stage, it's said to be primarily for safety. Now, there are many examples of how spirits have used these lights to communicate their presence to the living world. And I've heard claims of lights going off and on and things like that. So now some claims that the actor's name was Vincent. He's has he's been uh, seen wandering around the club. It's claimed by a witness that Vincent has showed himself in a mirror and then crawled out of it and walked into a bathroom. Now, could this Vincent that people claim is the actor that committed suicide? Could it be? that of the once owner of the complete town and that building, Vincente Martinez Ibor. So there's a something to ponder on. Now, it's all possible that an embarrassed and disgruntled actor could certainly haunt the spaces where he forgot the lines to his show. But what makes the situation worse is that the legend was also the playwright. Now, the theater at the Cuban Club is one of the most haunted spaces in Tampa. So imagine how many individuals have spent time in there over, you know, 100 years or so. Now, there's the, uh, the claim sighting of Little Jimmy, and he's the ghost of the Cuban Club that people see quite often. Now, one of the saddest ghost stories of the Cuban club is the tale of the little, little Jimmy. Now, as you tour the space today, there's a cantina, 
a three-tiered entertainment space. It's perfect for large events and parties. But many years ago, the cantina was the location of the Cuban club swimming pool. So interesting. Now, while history has young Jimmy either as an eight or nine-year-old, depending on who you asked, his fate remains the same. Jimmy went swimming in the pool, unattended, and he tragically drowned. Now, while ultimately the death was accidental, Jimmy's spirit has never felt the need to leave the Cuban club. Uh, little Jimmy is a playful spirit and has communicated with guests on ghost tours uh, using their flashlights to communicate. Now, if you find yourself with a flashlight inexplicably blinking on and off, well, that's just Jimmy saying hello. Now, passerbys also caught his little face peeking out of the upstairs window in photographs taken when the Cuban club was closed. Many have witnessed the apparition of a boy bouncing a ball in the area of the cantina that used to house a swimming pool. There are other playful ghost experiences that have been attributed to Jimmy, including the elevators running with no one in them and the doors refusing to shut. Now, you can feel the youthful energy in these ghostly pranks. Now, Ebor City's positive energy is overwhelming with Jimmy. Many guests appreciate that the visits do not feel sinister and are the perfect first ghost encounter. Now, other ghostly stories... Uh, and activity in the Cuban club that still linger there are nameless spirits. Their specific histories definitely lost to time, but the spirits remain. Now, ghost hunters and the popular TV programs, uh, they've found the Cuban club to be an excellent site of metaphysical action. There are tales of pianos playing, uh, sorrowful tunes and a woman in white dress uh, with red heels wandering the halls. Now the story of the lady in white goes something like this. She was a young girl around 16. Uh, she caught the eye of a gangster and he pursued her heavily. Uh, she wanted nothing to do with him and rejected his advances several times. Uh, this angered him and if he couldn't have her, nobody could. And when he found her out on the balcony, he picked her up and threw her off the top of the club. Now, her brother stabbed the gangster to death outside the club that evening. As the Cuban club has long been used as a wedding reception venue, it isn't any wonder some spirits may choose to stay in the location of the best days of their lives for all eternity. Now, the shooting death of Belarmino Vallejo now, it's been said that after an argument, one of the board members shot another board member in the face while in a complete rage. And reportedly, both of their spirits still remain in the Cuban club. Now, Bellarmino moved to Tampa, Florida, where he worked as a cigar maker. Eventually, he married his wife, Lydia, and Bellamidor... Bel Armino was a member of the Cuban Club and Woodsman of the World Fraternity. Now, Bel Armino Vallejo, uh, his life tragically ended when he was murdered on April 13, 1934. The following is an excerpt from the article published in the Tampa Tribune on Saturday, April 14, 1934. Man shot at the Cuban Club dies of wounds. Now, 
Bellamino Vallejo, 47, cigar maker of 2401 Columbus Drive, shot Thursday night during a disturbance at the Cuban Club. He died last night at 1145 at El Blen Publico Clinic. No arrests have been made, and by early this morning, the shooting on the stage of the club's theater at 10th Avenue and 14th Street as a climax to the stormy meeting called to discuss the discharge of a club's physician. Edward Valdez, the club president, who was severely beaten in a free-for-all fight behind the wings of the stage, was questioned by notifiers yesterday, but was released in the custody of a friend. He was taken in the county jail Thursday night shortly after the disturbance, but no charges were placed against him. Now, the state attorney, uh, Ferrer, said his investigation had failed to directly connect Valdez with the shooting and indicated that the club president had no pistol or other weapon when the difficulty arose. Now, he added that evidence indicated that Vallejo apparently was the aggressor in the difficulty, and for this reason, no murder charge would be sustained against Valdez under any circumstances. Now, it appears impossible to determine, at least for the present, who fired the shots. The state attorney said, I have found no eyewitnesses yet who said Valdez had or used a gun. Now, a pistol was found by the officers at Valdez's home, but it was fully loaded and no indication it had been fired. The best information I could gather was that a fight took place backstage between Vallejo and Valdez as the latter walked from the platform and that the shots were fired after possibly a score of persons had jammed into a small room where the fight started. Valdez himself was badly beaten. Now, Vallejo was shot in the left side near the heart as he ran down an aisle of the theater towards the stage just after President Valdez cursed from the audience, uh, had left the stage and walked into the wings. As Valdez reached the side of the stage, he was trampled and beaten by several unidentified assailants. At the same time, several shots were fired from behind the scene. The fighting on the stage was the signal for scattered exchanges of blows in the audience of more than 500 people, but no one was seriously injured in them. Reportedly, both of their spirits remain in a Cuban club, both goes full of regret for their lives unfulfilled. Now, that is all very, very interesting, and there is a ton of activity there. So, yeah, there is that. Now, before the Don Vicente de Ebor Inn, Casa Ebor of the former Don Vicente de Ebor Inn, which was established in 1895, the man who founded Ebor City built this building and did it in a Mediterranean style. Today, it offers retail, residential, and office spaces, but it's best remembered as the Don Vicente de Ebor Inn. That is what it was called when the Dead Files para-TV show visited. Now, originally, this was a real estate office, uh, Ebor Land and Improvement Company, a planning and development office for the community, and then it transformed into L. Bean Publico Clinic, a medical clinic in 
1903, it would change the name to the Gonzalez Clinic after the L. Bean Publico closed in 1973. Now, this would run until 1980. The building sat empty for 18 years, and then Jack Shiver bought it in 1998 and fully refurbished it uh, back in a beautiful period decorated inn. Uh, a beautiful staircase was restored, as well as hand-carved wooden bar, uh, the brass and bluish-pink light fixtures, Persian rugs, beautiful French chandeliers, and antiques were added. Now, one of which was an imposing grandfather clock that was the grand prize winner at the 1950 Panama Pacific Exhibition in San Francisco. Now, the basement had been a speakeasy at one time and was renovated to be a large gathering place. Now, the inn closed in May of 2015, and it's now Casa Ibor. Now, Daryl Shaw had bought the building in 2014 to turn it into offices. Uh, to me, it just doesn't seem... <laughs> I mean, why would you take this beautiful, beautiful building and convert it into offices? I, I, I really don't know. I am kind of... I'm kind of torn on that. Now, during the clinic time, this was really a celebrated hospital. There was a, a man named Jose Luis Avalanol who had been born in Tampa in 1903. Now, his father had founded the first clinic in the building. One of his father's first patients was a young boy that Jose had shot in the eye. Now, Jose was a really bad kid, and he was going to grow into a really bad guy. He would develop what he called an electric chair when he was young and convince a neighborhood boy to help him test it. Needless to say, this would be another patient for his father. His father put him in solitary confinement, hoping it would straighten him out. But he just escaped and stole his dad's car. He was shipped off to military school. He moved around when he became an adult with a stop in Tennessee where he was charged with possession of drugs and kidnapping a woman. Now, when he returned to Ybor City, he claimed that he was a doctor, but many feel the diploma was fake. Now, he set up shop at El Passage Hotel, where he conducted bizarre and macabre experiments. He told people he could raise the dead and even tried to publish articles on resurrecting the dead. Apparently, he was bringing dead cats back to life. At least that was his claim. Now, he was also experimented with cryogenics. Interesting. He uh, practiced as a plastic surgeon and gynecologist. So I can only imagine what kind of horror show that was. Now, he also established Southern University, which was really only a diploma mill, and he was charged with fraud. He visited Mexico, returned claiming that he had been given the title of lieutenant general, and he was often seen in full uniform around town. He eventually died in 1982. Now, an interesting note, as if the rest of this wasn't, it, is that Jose wrote a suicide note, and in it he claimed to have had 500 sexual relationships. The note was nine pages of rambling and disturbing narcissism. Our locals have called this location Hotel Hell. Our Dead Files on a Travel Channel featured this in a first season, um, and Amy 
Allen really didn't like the place. The first entity she, she that her experience was is a nurse who worked in the clinic. Uh, she sees the spirit going back and forth over and over in what seems to be a residual manner. Now, as she continues to do her work in the afterlife, the nurse's name is thought to be Tabby. Now, there were 16 rooms in all, and the two main haunted rooms in the inn were rooms 303 and 305. Now, the water is said to come on by itself and footsteps are heard. Now, outside of the room 305, Amy thought she saw the body of someone lying face up. When she entered the room, she felt a very strange negative energy and she began to feel sick. She felt like a murder-suicide had happened in the room. But this incident did not happen while this was an inn. Did it happen in the clinic? Possibly. Now, the front desk clerk, Ray, uh, he said a woman told him that she saw a ghost that stared at her in room 305. Now, Tessa is the daughter of Jack Shiver, and she helped run the inn. She was scared of the basement and always took the stairs two at a time when she was going up. She told Steve about the terrifying experience she had one day in the restroom down in the basement around 2.30 in the, in the afternoon. Now, she looked up into the mirror and saw a woman in a Spanish veil standing behind her. She could see right through the woman. She fell backwards, screaming in terror, spilling her purse and all its contents all over the floor. Now, Jack Shiver himself had experiences too. He was down working in the basement and he saw a light and then a very small lady. There are no windows in the basement. The woman looked back at him and he thought she was a Spanish woman as well. He could see through her and he knew that she wasn't human at all. The basement had served as a speakeasy at one time, and Amy could see that there were many people there. She had to leave the area after she was overwhelmed by at least 20 entities. She said that it felt as if though many had been killed, somebody at some point. So that's interesting. Some had crushed faces, and they were vibrating. Uh, their energy was vibrating. Um, it all sounded very weird. Uh, she could sense the tunnels coming to the basement. Uh, now remember, the Ebor had these tunnels everywhere. So was this where they brought in alcohol during the Prohibition? Now keep in mind that anything went in the city, so they really didn't need to hide stuff in the tunnels. Uh, these tunnels could have helped Jose to move bodies through them. Now, did that happen? Amy thinks that perhaps her visions of people in the walls down in the basement were actually a morgue. And it makes sense because it was a, a clinic. It will be interesting to hear what happens after the office is open. The people of Casa Ebor could experience the same things as, as those who ran the, and visited the inn that was there before them. Now, Ebor City is a great place to visit. I'm not trying to at all say Ebor City is not a good place to visit. It is a fantastic place, very historical. And if you're coming to Tampa, take the time to visit the neighborhoods and walk through the brick streets. 
uh, the locations in Ybor City are fantastic. Now, are they haunted? Well, that's for you to decide. <laughs> so, now, sometimes you can experience uh, some interesting things just by walking past buildings. Um, so if you're simply interested in the history of Ebor or you don't believe in the paranormal, uh, you know, that decision is completely up to you. And it's definitely an experience either way that you're going to find unforgettable. And as I said, you know, some visitors even mention hearing voices and whispers and even claims of being touched that can't be explained. So if you want to go visit the Cuban Club, you know, check out... Uh, the Cuban Club's website. It's uh, cubanclubebor.com. So that's it, folks. I want to thank everybody for tuning in tonight, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really liked it. I thought it was a good episode. And uh, please be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, follow. Uh, that way you can receive uh, notifications when new content from Paranomaly Podcast is made. Now, if you believe you have something paranormal happening in your home or business and you believe you may have witnessed maybe a UFO, uh, please send us your stories, photos, videos, questions, suggestions, uh, any comments that you have. Send them to uh, paranomalypodcast at gmail.com and I will put that link in the description. You can also visit us on the web at paranomalypodcast.com. For more content and information, including all of our social links are there. So thank you again for watching and listening. And we hope to see you for the next episode of Paranomaly. Thank you, everybody, so much. Have a wonderful evening.